We are continuing our series in the book of Acts this morning. And um, you can find that passage on uh, pages 8 and 9 of your bulletin. Um, We're not looking at every verse of every chapter in the book of Acts, but we're uh, looking at some of the highlights in order to understand the book as a whole and how that the book of Acts helps us to understand the New Testament and all of the Bible and even our own lives and what it means to be a new church. Uh, What we see in Acts is the uh, historic account of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles to gather and to grow the early church even to the ends of the earth. And we've said each week that we are actually beneficiaries of that sitting here this morning uh, as resurrection. We're beneficiaries of this church going to the ends of the earth. Uh, As you're getting situated to our passage, um, I want you to think to yourself, um, have you ever found yourself uh, wanting to be a part of something but feeling like an outsider? Maybe it was like a group of friends Uh, Maybe it was a club or an organization or a a company or a team. You really wanted to be a part of it, uh, but you felt like an outsider and you felt like there was a really high wall or standard that that wouldn't let you get in and become an insider. And then let's say down the road you, you get into that club or you get on the team or you join that group of friends and now you're an insider. And you would think that the impulse would be, hey, we need to include more people in this. But once you're an insider you realize, hey, actually, I kind of like it that these walls are pretty high, that it's hard to be an insider here. This feels, this feels pretty good to be an insider. Um, sometimes when we feel like outsiders, we want the walls to be lower so that more people can get in. Sometimes when we feel like insiders, we want the walls to remain high so that fewer people can get in. Um, this is a passage about insiders and outsiders. And this is a passage about who gets to be an insider with God. The Jewish people, God's Old Testament people, they were convinced that they were on an inside track with God. But we see that greatly disrupted in our passage. Acts chapter 10. I'll read our passage for us. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice uh, came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So that was Peter's vision. Verse 17. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision uh, that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. 
So Cornelius sends these men to go to Peter upon this prompting of the Lord. Peter invites them in to stay with him. And then the second half of 23, The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down on his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Cornelius tells him why he sent for him. And now Peter is going to share this message with him. Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, He sent about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God, to be judged of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Verse 44, you'll see this response from those listening. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. God, what an incredible passage. We need you desperately to help us to understand it. Um, If your spirit doesn't give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to believe, then we can't know you. And so we're desperate for you this morning. And Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, So throughout the course of my life, um, from about high school on, I've had an on-again, off-again relationship with the sport of cycling. Um, A few years ago, I was in an on-again phase. I acquired a road bike, got it all fixed up, started riding again. It's really great. 
Um, I don't really uh, necessarily consider myself a cyclist in the proper sense of the word, but I have a lot of friends who, are, who very much consider themselves cyclists or in that crowd. As I was getting back into the sport, um, I realized and I was reminded that cycling has a very strong insider culture. Very strong insider culture. No offense to all you cyclists out there. You know, I love you. Um, generally, cyclists love it when people start their sport because it's, you know, the growth of the sport. It's good for everyone. Um, however, once you re- reach the point of being just serious enough in cycling, that's when you begin to feel some of the insider culture. And it shows itself with some very particular rules. My brother is a very avid cyclist. He sent me this list from this website called the Voluminati, like Velo Voluminati, um, and of these rules you must know if you're going to be a serious cyclist. I'll just share some of these with you. Rule number seven, um, tan lines should be cultivated and kept razor sharp. Under no circumstances should one be rolling up their sleeves or shorts in an effort to somehow diminish one's tan lines. Sleeveless jerseys are under no circumstances to be employed. All right, so this is an insider rule. Tan lines are a thing of pride if you're a cyclist. All right, rule number 25. Um, Bikes on the top of your car should be worth more than the car. All right, so to be an insider in the cycling world, you've got to have a really nice bike that's worth more than your car. All right, number 27. Um, Shorts and socks should be like Goldilocks. Not too long and not too short. So there's like an unspoken, like certain length for your shorts and socks. They have to be just right, insider rule. Um, number 37, um, I'm oh, sorry, number 36, eyewear should be cycling specific. No aviator shades, blue blockers, or clip-on covers for eyeglasses. 37 follows, the arms of the eyewear shall always be placed over the helmet straps. No exceptions. This is for various reasons that may or may not matter. It's just the way it is. And then back up to rule number 12. This is maybe my favorite. The correct number of bikes to own is N plus 1. While the minimum number of bikes one should own is 3, the correct number is N plus 1, where N is the number of bikes currently owned. Okay, so being an insider means just having lots of bikes and always needing one more. Um, There are about 50 rules um, from the Voluminati for these insider rules for cycling. Cycling culture can be a hard world to break into. Um, Lots of nuanced rules and expectations that separate the insiders from the outsiders. Uh, The tension that we feel in this passage is one of the strongest barriers and divisions between groups of people is starting to crumble. Uh, The nuanced rules of what distinguishes an insider from an outsider before God are changing in this passage. And this is good news, but it's disruptive news. Um, The division between Jews and Gentiles was centuries old, deeply entrenched, and we can even say that it had been culturally appropriated by each group, meaning that It was so a part of their way of being that it was all over their culture and their rules and their ceremonies, just how they did life and how they lived. It had been culturally appropriated by both groups that it would have seemed impossible for this division wall, this dividing wall to come down. Here's what I want us to wrestle through in this text this morning. Who gets to be an insider with God and how does that happen? Who gets to be an insider with God and how does that happen? Three headings, the vision of good news, the message of good news, and the response to the good news. 
Vision, message, response. First, the vision of good news. So verse 9, it starts with Peter going up on this flat rooftop. It's a rooftop that you could walk on. He goes up to pray. He gets hungry. They go to prepare food for him. And he goes into this trance. And he has this vision from the Lord. What does he see in this vision? The heavens open. Something look, uh, looking like a, a white sheet or a, a, like a white sail is being lowered down by its four corners in front of him in this vision. On this sheet were all kinds of animals. Uh, it says um, animals, reptiles, birds. Um, God speaks to Peter in this vision and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He's saying, you see those animals on that sheet? Go kill them and eat them. And what is Peter's response? He says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So that's telling us that on this sheet, in this vision, were animals that had been ceremonially declared either clean or unclean according to their Jewish law. And Peter's like, I've never eaten anything unclean. God, I'm not going to go rise, kill, and eat that because that would make me unclean. And the voice clearly says, verse 15, what God has made clean, do not call common. Verse 16, it says this happened three times, the vision went away. That's one part of this vision. Meanwhile, just before our passage, God spoke to a man named Cornelius. God told Cornelius, go and send for Peter. He's going to bring you news that is an answer to what you've been praying about. All right, this all sounds wild. Um, what does this mean? Let's talk about the meaning of this vision. Verse 15, it says, what God has made clean, do not call common. So he's referring to all these animals that were um, both considered clean and unclean based on their current laws. And now God is saying, hey, see all those animals, all those reptiles, all those birds? They're all clean. They're all clean. Um, Peter's going to say it this way when he's speaking to Cornelius and his friends in verse 34. He says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but uh, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. All right, what is this telling us about the vision? This means that the vision of clean and unclean animals was not about animals. It was about people. This is ultimately a vision about people. Jews were considered ritually pure, clean ones. Gentiles were considered ritually impure, unclean ones. And Peter's message is God shows no partiality between Jew and Gentile. And this would have been shocking. Let's talk about the shock of this. Um, it, this was um, a deeply embedded division, um, but one that God did not actually intend to exist. That's important background to know about this division. God did not design this division between Jews and Gentiles the way that the Jews were interpreting it. Uh, and John Stott in his commentary does a great job of unpacking the nuances of this. Um, but the mission of God in the Old Testament is the same as the mission of God in the New Testament. Not two different gods, not two different missions. Same mission, Old and New Testament. God chose and blessed one family. You can write down your notes, Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. You can read that later on. God chooses and blesses one family, the family of Abraham. Why? He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Why? So that you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. He says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God starts this whole mission by choosing a particular people to work through so that everyone may come to know him through choosing this particular family. It was always a means to an end of everyone coming to know him. Uh, but in their sin, the Israelites began to twist this. Uh, they began to think of themselves as favored by God over other peoples of the earth. 
that they were just blessed to be blessed and not to be a blessing as God originally commanded them. So they began to be filled with racial pride and ethnic pride, uh, which turned into hatred against anyone who was a non-Jew. They would call them Gentile dogs. And this twisting of God's original purposes became so entrenched for the Israelites in their laws, in their ceremonies, and how they treated others. It was passed down generation after generation after generation. It was in their DNA. And so by the time of our passage, those who were committed Jews wouldn't even consider to go in the home of a Gentile. They wouldn't dare sit down and have a meal with them because it would make them unclean. It would make them ritually impure. Now, with that in mind, can you imagine the shock when Peter gets this vision and is called to go to Cornelius? Cornelius was a Gentile. It's a little bit hard to pick that up in our passage. He was not a Jew. He was well-known, socially connected. He was considered a God-fearer, even respected by the Jews. Uh, But what they say about him was that while he believed in their God, he didn't go through their ceremonial ritual laws. He He wasn't circumcised. He didn't have the mark of the covenant. So he wasn't officially an insider. He was basically as close as you can get to being an insider while still being an outsider. So they respected him, but he wasn't one of them. So in the midst of this centuries-old division between Jews and Gentiles, God brings together Peter and Cornelius through this vision. All right, kids, if you have a TV at home, I want you to picture that TV. Um, What do you use to change the channels and control your TV? Your remote, right? Your remote controls your TV. Um, So we're so dependent on that remote. Um, If we lose the remote... We can't control the TV and and all chaos ensues in your house. All right, kids, this is crazy. I'm about to share something wild with you. Do you know that there was a time when we didn't have remotes for our TVs? We actually had to get up. If we wanted to change a channel, we actually had to get up and walk up to the TV and push a button or move this little dial um, to change the channel. So you really had to want to change the channel if you were to get up and do that. So you would get up, walk TV, change the channel, go back, sit down. Imagine every time you want to change the TV, you had to get up and do that. I will never forget the Saturday when I was a young child, my family got a TV with a remote. It was an absolute game changer. We, didn't, we no longer had to get up and go to the TV and change the channel. We could just sit there all day and use the remote. It totally revolutionized the way that we watch TV. Y'all, this message that is coming from Peter's vision, that this good news was for everyone, Jews and Gentiles, was a complete game changer for both groups of people. Um, How they thought about being an insider with God was being totally revolutionized. and It would never be the same here. This was a vision of good news. What was the message that Peter shares when he begins to unpack this? Let's talk about the message of good news. So Peter goes to Cornelius. Cornelius was so excited about this. Very, uh, very much a teachable, humble guy, ready to learn. He gathers his friends and family. He was so eager to learn. Verse 25, when Peter walks in, Cornelius falls down and starts worshiping him. Peter tells him to stop. Verse 28 Peter just names the craziness of the situation, of how wild this is. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. 
But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And in verse 34, Peter shares the good news of the Messiah with this group of Gentiles. Remember, he's standing in their home full of Gentiles, shares this news. Let me just summarize his message for you, beginning in verse 34. 34 and 35, he says that God shows no partiality. That everyone in, in every nation, anyone can be a part of this. He uses the phrase, it's a little bit interesting, it might have jumped out to you. Um, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. This is just another way of talking about repenting and believing and becoming a follower of Jesus. He's not advocating for some kind of like salvation by works here. He's saying whoever fears God, whoever turns from their sin to his mercy and begins following him. Um, whoever does that, uh, no matter where they're from, no matter what their cultural background is, they're included in this. Verse 36, he says this message went to Israel, ultimately to go to all nations. And in this message, he unpacks who Jesus is. He says he was, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. He says that Jesus is the one who brought peace. He says that Jesus went about, quote, doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Verse 39, it says the Jews put him to, get to death by hanging him on a tree. That's very explicit Old Testament imagery here. The Old Testament says that everyone hung on a tree is cursed. He's saying that Jesus was the cursed one on our behalf. In verses 40 and 41, he talks about the resurrection. A physical, bodily resurrection. He rose from the grave and actually ate and drank afterwards. He says the apostles were tasked to go preach this good news. And then finally, verse 43, he says, Everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All right, so this is Peter's summary of the good news. Let me just highlight two benefits of what he just said. This text doesn't tell us this, um, but it seems as though Cornelius would have been longing to hear these two things as we are today. Two benefits from this message. The first is this, that in Christ we have peace with God. In Christ, we have peace with God. The core problem for Jews and Gentiles and all of us here this morning is that our rebellion against God has disrupted our peace with God that we were intended to have. Uh, Genesis 3, very beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve disobey in the garden. They break what's called the shalom, this holistic, all of life peace that we're to have with God, others, and the world. The shalom is broken in Genesis 3. And God's mission in the world then becomes one of restoring shalom. And the person of work and work of Jesus is the pinnacle of this shalom being restored. Um, think about it this way. Have you ever gotten sideways with a friend or a family member and there's some kind of conflict uh, to where the relationship, it messes things up and suddenly things just feel off. Like something's not right in the relationship and you can feel it. You're not at peace with it. It feels broken. It needs to be repaired. Maybe it gets so bad that um, you're losing sleep. You're waking up in the middle of the night thinking about this relationship. Uh, it's not how it's supposed to be. Um, it can be very disruptive. But then let's say you lean in and you reconcile with that person. And almost like that, you're able to sleep at night. The relationship has been restored. And you can oh, take a deep breath. Finally, there's peace in that relationship again. Jesus offers us peace with God. Um, the most fundamental relationship in our lives. That means no more wondering how, where we stand with God. No more losing sleep 
over our restlessness of, am I okay with God? But that fracture has been healed. That shalom has been restored through Jesus. Conflict has been resolved. Real peace with God. So that's one of the benefits of this good news. Peace with God. Secondly, forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. Through Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Jesus died the death that we were to die. And so when you believe in Him, you are forgiven and you're cleansed by Him. And so here's what that tells us about being a follower of Jesus. Um, following Jesus is not about doing enough good to make up for the bad that you've done. We may cognitively know that, but functionally we can live a very different story. Functionally we can live as though my life as a follower of Jesus is mostly about me doing more good than bad so I can be right with God. That's not what this is saying. We're not on a quest to stack up enough good to tip the scales and outweigh our bad. The scriptures actually tell us that our sin is too bad to do that. But that Jesus actually really paid for our sin in full. The debt has been fully paid. And the second thing it means is this, that following Jesus is not about hiding. Following Jesus is not about hiding. It can be so difficult to really believe our sins are forgiven. That's why, by the way, on a weekly basis, we do that confession of sin, assurance of grace. We come to this table on a weekly basis because we need this shaped and formed and molded into us week after week to really believe our sins are forgiven. Functionally, we can sort of slip into this practice of just kind of hiding our sin. Like maybe if I just like don't think about it or don't talk about it or don't tell others about it or don't talk to God about it. Maybe it'll make it like less of a reality for me. And so we kind of just try to push it. But it ends up kind of like we're trying to push this beach ball underwater and just keep popping up again and again. Following Jesus is not about hiding our sin. Why? Because Jesus actually took it on himself and paid for it. He's paid for it in full. Psalm 103 says that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. We don't have to hide. We're forgiven. Uh, you may have seen the story this week about uh, the elk in Colorado with the car tire around its neck. This is amazing. For over two years, people in the town of Pine, Colorado, have been reporting an elk with a tire around his neck. Apparently, somehow this tire got on his neck when he was younger. His head was smaller. His head grew. His antlers grew. And so the tire couldn't come off. And so for over two years, people have been spotting this elk with a car tire around its neck. But this week, finally, this elk came within range of the, like the, uh, whoever does this kind of thing. <laughs> the animal rescue people, I don't know. They shoot it with a tranquilizer, which just puts it to sleep temporarily. They remove the tire and they let it go free. All right. I'm not an elk. I've never had a tire around my neck. Can you imagine how much better that elk must feel this week? Uh, to have the burden of a heavy rubber car tire removed from your neck. Think about this elk in the wild. How much easier it is for this elk to run. To move through the forest. To bend down to eat. To keep watch for predators. Especially after two years. I would guess that he actually got pretty used to that tire. Over the course of that time. That just became sort of how he functioned with the burden of the tire on his neck. Uh, to have your sins forgiven is to have the most obstructive, 
heaviest burden removed from you. And it's a burden that we're born with, probably so accustomed to that we often live as a bearing the burden of our sin is just what you have to do as a person. Just part of the human experience, right? To bear up under the weight of that. But Jesus looks at us bearing the burden and he has compassion on us. And so he comes to us and he removes that burden from us and takes it from us completely. And now we're invited into this freedom of following Jesus. The invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation uh, into a lighter burden. To be free of the weight of your sin. All right, this is a message of good news that Peter was proclaiming to the Jews that came with him and to these Gentiles in the home of Cornelius. The end of the passage shows, shows the response. Let's talk about the response to the good news. Verses 44 to 48 capture responses of both Jewish believers that came with Peter and then the Gentiles that he was preaching to in Cornelius' home. And we could summarize um, the Jewish response as Jewish amazement. Jewish amazement. Look at verse 45. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Uh, it doesn't tell us, but it seems like this is good amazement from our passage. Uh, the original word translated as amazed here could mean astonishment or being put out of place, like disrupted, being beside yourself. So these Jewish followers of Jesus were beside themselves that the Holy Spirit had fallen on Gentiles. They were amazed. These people who did not follow the ceremonial laws, their way of being an insider with God, were suddenly insiders with God. Everything had changed. And they were amazed. All right, what about the Gentiles? What was their response? We see Gentile conversion. Look at verse 44. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Verse 46. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Verses 47 and 48. Peter says, basically, let's baptize them. The Holy Spirit has fallen on them. Uh, who are we to withhold baptism? Again, an amazing thing, right? See, the Holy Spirit and baptism, these marks of the new covenant, falling on Gentiles. Peter makes the bold, daring, courageous claim. Hey, if they're in, they're in. We're going to fully include them and we're going to baptize them. Gentile conversion. All right. According to our passage, who gets to be an insider with God? Anyone who believes. No matter your background or story. According to our passage, who is the good news for? It's good news for all who believe. Two questions I want us to reflect on this morning. The first is this. Do you believe? Do you believe? Not, uh, not just in like a check the box and move on sort of way. But really believe. Like deep down in your heart where there's been a seed planted that you feel growing and sprouting and taking over your life. Where Jesus is increasingly becoming more beautiful to you. And any part of your life that is not in line with Jesus is becoming more and more empty. And less and less fulfilling. And you don't like it like you used to. He's becoming more beautiful. The rest of life is becoming less beautiful. Do you feel that happening internally? Do you really believe? Uh, fullness of life in Jesus is on offer to you this morning. 
Do you believe? Second thing I want to think about. Are you willing to embrace the messiness of this good news being for everyone? Are you willing to embrace the messiness of this good news being for everyone? It can be tempting to read a passage like this and think, oh, like, this is so cool. People from like crazy, culturally different backgrounds and ethnicities coming together around faith in Jesus. I'm all for that. I love it. Um, and it is cool. And we are for it. But these Jewish believers didn't suddenly lose all of their cultural history and preferences the day they came to Christ. And these Gentile believers didn't suddenly start living like Jews just to make things easier. Even while coming to Christ, both groups maintained their cultural history and preferences. And this had to be messy when they came together. That's a tension that doesn't go away. In fact, much of the rest of the New Testament continues to deal with this tension of how will Jews and Gentiles do life together in Christ? Because it's really messy. Uh, Whatever your background is, whatever your preferences are, when this good news of Jesus comes to those who are different from you or other than you, are you willing to embrace the messiness of navigating these real differences as you learn to share life together? This text pushes hard against us in that direction. And how do you become a person who can embrace the messiness of this good news for everyone? Uh, By immersing yourself in your own need of Jesus and by being captivated with the beauty of who he is and what he's done for you. Let me pray that for all of us now. Father... We do ask for this sense of captivation with your son.